Good morning. I'm Ken Gerardin, Research Director at the Empire Center for Public Policy. I'm joined this morning by my colleagues, Bill Hammond. He's our Senior Fellow for Healthcare Policy, and Cam McDonald, Adjunct Fellow and New York State Law Extraordinaire. And the three of us are going to give you our takes on what we saw yesterday from Governor Hochul's Fiscal 25 Executive Budget Presentation. As many of you may have seen last week on E.J. McMahon's excellent webinar, under New York's executive budget process, the governor in January presents his or her proposals for how the state will spend money in the fiscal year beginning April 1. There are some statutorily prescribed processes that follow where there's back and forth with the legislature, and the final deal is hopefully finished by the end of March. So what we saw yesterday was basically the governor's opening offer before she goes into negotiations with the legislature. Before we talk too much about numbers, I'd like to just remark here, and this is just me editorializing, the governor's tone was extremely refreshing. Uh, not only did she uh, have a almost Hugh Carey, like the days of wine and roses are over, but she really, she got into some details. So one of those details was pointing out the fact that New York has the highest in the nation K through 12 spending on a per pupil basis. The most recent data that's posted on empirecenter.org shows that New York schools are spending about 90% more than the national average at $26,000 per student. That's also 30% more than neighboring Massachusetts. And she's laying these things out there because there's an expectation in the legislature that the state is going to give another round of really what could be safely described as budget busting spending increases. Uh, what we saw beginning in 2021, when the legislature passed the biggest income tax hike in state history, uh, was a real break from past spending increases, where the rate of spending increase essentially doubled uh, three years in a row. And the governor is now recognizing that. She had a great line uh, where she said, uh, you know, we were spending like there was no tomorrow, but tomorrow always comes. And she also drew a line and said she will not balance the budget this year with tax increases. So those were all refreshing things to hear. Uh, you could you could hear echoes of a lot of things that we at the Empire Center have been saying, not just about top line spending levels, but also about specific programs like school aid and Medicaid. So with that, let's talk a little bit about the numbers. The plan the governor proposed yesterday calls for total spending of $233 billion. Um, that is, uh, that's the all funds figure. We don't pay a great deal of attention to that because a big chunk of that is federal money that comes from Medicaid. The schedule for when that money comes can kind of give uh, the wrong impression about stuff. But looking at where New York's total spending has has changed since the last budget before COVID, that is the the deal, the fiscal 20 deal that was approved in March 2019. It's a 35% increase, and that's roughly one and a half times the rate of inflation in that period. We typically look at something called state operating funds. This is more or less the money that New York State has to go out and collect in taxes and fees. So it's a smaller portion of the budget, but it gives a better reflection of what public policy decisions are being made in Albany. And in that figure, the governor proposed a $136 billion uh, spend that is up 4.5% year over year. Um, that's up 33% from 
from where it was immediately before COVID. So you had those three years in a row where you had, you know, almost, you know, in the neighborhood of 10% increases in some respects um, in, in fiscal 22, 23, 24. And she has now definitely hit the brakes on that. And we will talk a little more about some of those categories um, within there. But essentially, the state of New York went from a $102 billion state operating funds budget um, approved in 2019 to now looking at a $136 billion plan for state operating funds. Now, the biggest piece of that budget is the state Medicaid program. That's the state, the, the joint state and federal program for healthcare for the poor and disabled. Uh, Bill Hammond, you are probably New York's number one Medicaid watchdog. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you saw in the Medicaid piece of the budget that the governor presented yesterday? Well, well, as you say, there there was a pretty striking change in tone because during her first, the, this is her third budget. So she she was in charge in 2022 and 2023, and now she's going into her third cycle. Her first two budgets, especially in the healthcare area, were most notable for how freely she was spending money. She um, she allowed Medicaid to grow at a double-digit rate. She advocated bonuses for healthcare workers. She authorized big increases in payments to providers. And now this year, she's saying we need to put the brakes on. Um, and I, she, she's framing this as those last two years we were making up for a decade of non-investment, but we can't. You can't expect spending to grow at that rate indefinitely in the future. Um, you could quibble with her explanation of, of the history there. Um, Medicaid spending actually grew pretty substantially during the decade before she took office. But um, I think she's right that we can't sustain the level of increases that she allowed during her first two budgets. And so this will be kind of a test of, you know, to what extent does she really control the gas pedal in New York state? You know, can she, she, she said she's going to draw a line on taxes. To what extent can she also draw a line on spending? Um, the two things are related, but, you know, one doesn't necessarily determine the other. One thing that jumped out from her Medicaid presentation was when she acknowledged that the state program seems to have overspent by about $1.5 billion this year. And folks who had been reading your stuff would have seen back in October, you warned this was an indicator. And this also isn't the first time this has happened with the program, is it? Well, the it has a history almost from the beginning of the program of running over budget. Um, maybe the most infamous example of that happened in 2019 when it was $1.7 billion over budget at that time. The thing is, unlike Governor Hochul, the governor back then, Andrew Cuomo, chose not to make that information public. He didn't mention it in any of his financial plans. He didn't mention it in his budget presentation. No one knew about it un until he, the way he resolved it was by delaying a payment from March until April from one fiscal year to the next, which made on paper made look like the one fiscal year was in balance, but it opened a big hole in the second fiscal year and didn't reveal that he had done that until 
May of that year. So the legislature had passed a budget without knowing about this expense and it instantly created a, a deficit. So all that's way of leading up to the governor is, is handling this much better. She's flagging the fact that it's running over budget and putting that on the table for, you know, here's my plan for slowing that down. Um, it's, uh, I was telling someone earlier this morning, it's not like the state doesn't have the cash to cover that expense. It does. And, and if necessary, it could pull money from other programs. It's not a question of not being able to pay that bill. It's a question of she's has an obligation to balance the budget. That expenditure is throwing the budget out of balance and, and she has to reconcile that in the next budget. It's a, it, a lot of the 1.5 billion turns out to have been this anomalous situation where the governor agreed to advance some money to hospitals who were financially struggling uh, pending the arrival of some federal aid. They were supposed to pay it back within this fiscal year. It turns out they're not going to do that. Um, they are expecting that money to be paid back in the next fiscal year. So that creates a spike in spending in 2024. And then, you know, this unusual uh, drop in spending in 2025, that makes the numbers look a little crazy. Uh, and that that is the major driver of the overspending as uh, according to her account of it. Um, but there's no question that the program as a whole has been um, growing at a double digit rate for the past three or four years, which is about twice as fast as it grew during the previous decade. So, and, and the thing is New York already had a very expensive Medicaid program with, a, with high enrollment and high costs. So I agree with her that that's not sustainable going forward. Looking at the next biggest piece of the budget is the school aid that Albany sends to New York school districts. Um, the biggest thing that jumped out to me was, well, two things. First, the governor did not match the proposal that advocates had sought. The advocates had been seeking a number, something in the neighborhood of upwards of $2 billion um, increase in school aid, which would have, uh, in the current year, school aid is about $35 billion and would have brought it to about $37 billion. The governor proposed a number um, just shy of $900 million in increase, which is an increase, but to be sure, it's less than the rate of inflation, which is an, an important distinction from where the legislature had been in the prior three years, where they had essentially beat inflation each time and brought New York, frankly, to this unsustainable level. Uh, but on top of sort of tapping the brakes on the aid increase, she's also started what will be a very interesting conversation about how some of the state's wealthiest districts are getting considerably more aid than the program, the, the school aid program was ever considered, uh, was ever planning to give them. The state has had something called the home hold harmless provision, which prevents schools from getting less aid year over year. 
And that, among other things, has been affected by decreasing school enrollment. So you have a number of really, really wealthy districts in the in the New York City suburbs where spending is over $35,000 per student, and the state is still picking up um, an outsized share of that con compared to what they would be getting, say, you know, in other states. So we, ex we definitely expect a major battle over that. But one thing, and this goes back to the governor's tone, one thing she noted from the podium not only is New York's per people spending the highest in the nation, but she also noted that K-12 enrollment is down something in the neighborhood of 10% over the past decade. That's that's really unprecedented in the times that I've been watching governors, for a governor to go up there and, and say, look, the premise of all of this, the help the children do this for the kids premise of all these school aid conversations, um, for a governor to go and point out that kind of you know, fundamental change was was really striking, and it really felt like she could have been reading from you know she could have been reading from some Empire Center material on that front. So you know that the, the thing that, that occurred to me when she was talking about that is that you hear a lot of it often comes up in conversations about school aid about the disparity between the resources available to wealthy districts versus less wealthy districts. Well, if you if you want to address that, you have to stop overpaying the wealthy districts. And that's what she's talking about. She's saying we're this hold harmless provision is basically sending state aid to districts who are already spending at quite a high level. The problem she's going to run into, I mean, I actually think that the, the, the time might be right for some kind of action on that. But the problem she's going to run into is that the districts who would lose out in that scenario are suburban districts. And that's kind of the swing of politics in New York state is, can you hold on to the suburbs? Can, can Republicans make gains in the suburbs? Can Democrats hold on to what they have in the suburbs? If this, if they follow through on this and if it blows up as a political issue, it could affect all manner of legislative and even congressional races in the fall. So it's, It'll be interesting to see how the legislative leaders handle this, whether they draw a line and say, you know, all that talk about equity, remember that? We're going to ignore that because it's not politically convenient. So, One thing that's I'm, I'm curious, Ken, because I was I was really surprised that the thing that shall not be named was named, which is the decreasing enrollment. Do, is, do we have any rank speculation as to why she's touching that third rail? I, my speculation is that the governor is actually trying to rally support to her cause of tapping the brakes. And the way you do that as a governor is you use the bully pulpit and you show New Yorkers the fundamentals. Um, I remember a glimpse of this, not to this level, but a glimpse of this from David Patterson in 2008 when he had this really memorable TV address where he said you – know, uh, he essentially said, look, the bottom has fallen out of the state budget. And we can't afford to be spending the way we were before. Now, he was talking more about the revenue side of things. So, But for the governor to go out there and say, here are the fundamentals, here's the premise. So every time you hear any braying about, about school aid being cut or school aid being you know, anything, any increase less in inflation being cut or anything like that, look at these fundamentals. And I'm glad you brought this up because one of the most surprising things about – I shouldn't say surprising. One of the most distressing things about yesterday – wasn't the governor's presentation. It was the response from legislative Republicans 
who ostensibly are so concerned about the tax burden, the spending levels, the out-migration being driven by, by the high tax burden, out there attacking the governor for even putting her foot on the brakes and slowing the rate of growth. I think a lot of Republicans showed their true colors and just how uncommitted they are to actually shrinking the size and scope of New York state government. And I, I hope folks listening today will go and look at what their Republican lawmakers have said in their neck of the woods about this, because it, it will uh, it lays bare really just how how hollow New York Republicans have become in terms of public policy. You, um, I, I will. I, I I take your points about like the, her truth telling. There was a, there was an element of truth telling in her address in the healthcare area. She talked about how we spend more per capita on Medicaid than any state, which is which is true. Which you know I've I've tried to hammer home. She also talked about how, at least in the written part of her presentation, she talked about how the ratings, the the quality of care that we get for all that money is not great compared to other states. So that's that's great, to, you know, for her to put that on the table. The disconnect is I didn't hear any uh, proposals in terms of spending or in other policy areas that would do much to move either of those needles. Um, and then even rhetorically, on the one hand, she would say we spend a lot on Medicaid. On the other hand, she said we underestimate, underinvested in Medicaid for the decade before I took office. Well, those two things can't be true at the same time. Um, so I I do think she was trying, I, in answer to Cam's previous question, I think she's trying to um, manage expectations in the legislature. She's trying to highlight the, the ways in which state spending and budgeting has, has gone wrong to, as Ken says, to rally support for a better approach. I guess I'm still waiting to hear the better, better approach. I, I mean, really, I think she's she's positioning herself as in the context of uh, what's become a, an all democratic state, uh, uh, you know, Democrat majorities in both houses, where the attitude about spending has become much more liberal. She's positioning herself as the most responsible Democrat in the room, the, the, the one who's most concerned about fiscal discipline. But it's in the context, like I say, of the Senate and Assembly are not in that mode anymore. Um, and so it's, it, she's not some kind of arch conservative. She's just slightly less um, progressive than the other two players. You know, on that note, Ken, you circulated yesterday uh, a chart from the financial plan on uh, the state uh, running up against its uh, debt cap in the next few fiscal years. Um, and it's unfortunate to realize that the debt cap is a statutory provision and not something that's actually in the Constitution. So it is within the power of um, the legislature to change that amount. And that seems disturbing to a taxpayer like me. There will definitely be pressure on the legislature if the projections hold. Uh, one thing that we haven't talked about here is that on the capital spending side of things, there's a lot of borrowing. So for instance, we've heard about this plan to build, uh, I think, $160 million in new pools 
across New York, that's borrowing. The bulk of the New York's economic development spending recently has been borrowing, and it has been uh, has been adding considerably to the state's debt burden. One thing to watch for will be what the recent increase in interest rates does to the state's out-year debt service costs, because we have a lot of debt that we were that we rolled over at really low rates even during the pandemic some of them, and then now we're having to borrow at, at considerably higher rates. And there are statutory limits on the amount of debt that the state can carry and on the amount of debt service the state can pay as a function of personal income. And when we see fiscal 29, so that's the budget that'll be done in March 2028, uh, the state is essentially, uh, the state expects to have the credit card maxed out. And that'll be, you know, that, that's 36, that's 39 months from now. So we'll, we'll need to keep a very close eye on that. One last bit of spending business in terms of top line stuff that I want to mention. And I encourage anybody to, to fire away with the questions and answer feature on here if you want, uh, if you want us to tackle anything in particular from what we saw. But with the, uh, the migrant crisis in New York City. Um, the governor is proposing $2.4 billion in spending next year. That's actually almost half of the spending growth that's planned this year. She's calling for that's on top of an extra roughly uh, roughly billion dollars in appropriate in multi-year appropriations that were made last year. So the states the state's liability for migrants, uh, essentially the state's state government's costs for the migrant crisis is going to be about three billion dollars this year. And to put that in context, that's bigger than almost any state agency. That's roughly the amount of money that the state puts in to subsidize SUNY in a <clears throat> excuse me in a year. It's it's becoming a very big chunk of change, and there's there's a big unknown on just how much of these costs the federal government is going to come in and and backfill. Um, reading you know, reading statements coming from even New York representatives, I'm not optimistic about money coming from the feds anytime soon because there's there seems to be a, a pretty firm line in DC that until New York City repeals its sanctuary city status, that the feds are not going to go and rescue. Um, you know, rescue the city from from the costs that the result from that. Um, with that said, I'd like to turn for a moment to uh, to Cam. You know, Cam, we were doing budget stuff. We didn't want to talk policy stuff while we were talking about the budget. You know, just that's at the Empire Center. We've been critical of governors putting policy in the budget, so we had to get budget stuff out of the way. But I'd like to hear from you a little bit what your take is on the non-budgetary policy that seems to be in the governor's budget proposal. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's kind of hard to track because there's so much of it. But, um, you know, I would highlight a couple of things I've talked about in the past that are uh, have been good efforts on her part, like the licensing compact for physicians and, and nurses and the types of things that would, you know, enable uh, New York practitioners to, you know, do telemedicine out of state in other compact states that would be worthwhile that may reduce um, medical costs. Um, you know, it's important also, I think, to think in the context, we've talked about this before, uh, of, you know, some of these policy initiatives that can bring savings, for instance, with medical costs, um, bring savings to the state, because the state itself is, uh, you know, a commercial actor and a, a huge employer in the state. So, it, you know, anything that we see that's positive that way can can have run on budget effects. Um, you know, the unfortunate thing is there's, there's you know, there's good ideas like, um, reducing the pre and post judgment interest rate from the statutory amount of nine um, percent, which is, you know, 
pretty huge and unique to New York to the Treasury bill rate, which would is more in keeping of what is done on the federal level. And in tell most us what that is. States. Tell us what that limit is. Explain that for the the non lawyer in the room. So, um, except for consumer debt, if you, you did the, the there is a the civil uh, procedure law and rules sets a prejudgment interest rate or a post-judgment interest rate so that, you know, if there's a, a, a lawsuit for um, some some sort of damages that you can collect an, an interest rate of 9% from the time of filing the suit to the, to the judgment or until the time it's paid post-judgment, which is, you know, a very high amount. Um, the Treasury bill rate has been very low for a bunch of years. You know, at one point, I had a colleague calculating post-judgment interest at the federal amount a few years ago and was something like 0.8% or something like that. So um, so it, it, it's just, it's the type of thing that would be make New York a friendlier place to do business and 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 so on. Um, but the unfortunate thing is, is that this is the type of thing that will go out of the, the governor's office in the form of a bill language and then be stricken in, in the two house bill and we won't see it again, or maybe it will, it, these types of things will reappear at the last minute in the, in the budget negotiations at the end of, at, at the end of March and not be debated, not be uh, subject to legislative hearings and, and the type of discussion that would be positive for <laughs> New Yorkers to, to, to hear and see if they're, if they're interested. Yeah. The, the, the problem the, the way this the way this happens is that under the budget process, the governor has kind of maximum leverage with the legislature when things are linked to the budget. So she knows that the legislature knows that all the advocates know that if you are trying to signal in the context of Albany, if you're trying to signal that you're taking an issue seriously, you want it in the budget. And so the governor gets caught up in that um, logic, just like anybody else. If, if she really thinks that licensing should be reformed and she doesn't put it in the budget, no one's gonna take it seriously. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, um, that's, it's kind of a knock on the routine process that Albany has for dealing with legislative issues that you can't rely on that process to generate necessary policy changes. They, they don't do a good job of holding public hearings and analyzing legislation. Um, and, and it kind of reinforces itself because when things are piled into the budget, there's less time to give them a lot of thought and analysis because they're part of this huge complicated bill and they're horse traded for other items and yeah. What would we have to pay state lawmakers to get them to uh, engage in more in more thoughtful bill making? <laughs> Apparently, one hundred forty-two thousand dollars a year plus benefits is not uh, is not cutting the mustard. I don't. It's it's obviously not pay isn't the issue. I think it's culture. Um, it's just not it's not on anybody's expectation of a member of the assembly or the senate that they will approach things in a different way. I mean, one one symptom of it is that just the number of bills that get introduced when you when you don't have to put a lot of 
So exam if you were going to have a hearing on every bill, you wouldn't have thousands and thousands of bills introduced. You would, you know, that would, that would constrain things if you were having, um, if, if you had a requirement that every bill had a hearing before it was passed. That wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing on the planet though. Uh, no, I think that would be a much, uh, I, I sometimes think about like we, we've been a state for a couple hundred years. Um, pretty much every law that could, that anybody thought was necessary has been passed many times over in some cases. There's not that much left for the legislature to do, and yet they still find thousands and thousands of bills to introduce. Um, many of them are are completely redundant to something. You know, they tinker with an existing law. Um, right. Uh, so yeah, I'll just we can quick, do with a lot. Of I know we have a question in the question and answer, but I'll just quickly give a, a, you know an interesting one of the, the many many laws on the same day. Um, a bunch of years ago, the legislature passed a bill giving the specific meets and bounds, you know, the area where the Utica Boilermaker race could serve <laughs> beer post-race uh, because there was a prohibition on sales of beer on Sunday mornings. And so they did a specific exception for that. And then on the same day, actually changed the Sunday law so they didn't need the boiler to allow beer sales earlier in the day on a Sunday. So they didn't even need to make the special exception for, for the Utica Boilermaker race. All right. I'll, I'll bring stuff back to budget right now, <laughs> just for the folks at home to understand part of the reason why we're talking so much about policy right now is because policy issues have been what have held up the budget process and had major implications on the budget in recent years. Because essentially if you have one side that wants a policy, and the other side doesn't want to give it. Often, the other thing at the on the other side of that conversation is more spending. So the the policy heaviness of the budget does have a, a dollars and cents, a negative dollars and cents effect. Um, yeah, the governor ends up buying policy choices that she wants by allowing the legislature to spend more than she would like. That's the trade. Yeah. Often, often yes. Now we've got a question here about what the all-in cost of the migrant crisis is. I would say. The most the 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 number that I've been working off of has been the city of New York's estimate. Previously, it was at twelve billion. They have over on a multi-year basis. They have revised it down to ten billion dollars. I need to see how much of that is realized in the next two fiscal years. How much of that includes last year? But order of magnitude numbers. The city of New York is looking at about ten billion dollars. They have gotten so far a billion and a half from New York, and they are looking for an additional 2.4 this year. So the city, the, the state, this is back of the envelope calculation. The state would have picked up roughly 40% of the cost so far as we see it. Obviously, there's some money that's getting reimbursed for state for city costs. There's some money that the state is paying out in the first instance. But order of magnitude, we're looking at essentially when all is said and done. Uh, the, the the city of New York may end up having paid the equivalent of three Tappan Zee bridges or four U.S. aircraft carriers. I mean, you laugh, but you laugh, but in the in the grand scheme of things, it should be measured in terms of things that were usually comfortable, you know, things that you were usually familiar with government paying for and buying. And in in this case, the, the when the crisis is eventually over, we are going to have all of these expenses and money that's gone out the door. And nothing to show for it. No, no new infrastructure. No improved services. Um, it is, you know, this this is hopefully a very you know 
hopefully a temporary occurrence, uh, but we are looking at something in the neighborhood there. Um, thank you again. You know, we appreciate these these questions fire away on the Q&A feature. One more so thing. The second part of, so can I just jump in here? The second part of the question was why New Yorkers aren't pushing back more against this expense. And I think it's because there is a miss. There's a, there's a level of misinformation, misconception out there uh, the, that there's a constitutional right to shelter in New York that's not actually true. It's never truly been litigated. Um, the right to shelter is uh, is something of a fiction that was made up of a, of a settlement from a lawsuit filed back in the late 70s. It's part of a consent order entered in the court that the city agreed to. Um, provide shelter for the homeless and the state couldn't be bound by it, but said, we'll, we'll also support it and has historically supported uh, the city in its efforts that way. But the issue of what level of care needs the state needs to provide the needy under the constitution has never been fully fleshed out in the courts through the court of appeals. And in fact, the court of appeals has said um, the legislature needs to define these terms, what they mean by needy, what they mean by, um, you know, levels of care. So uh, I think that New Yorkers accept all this because it, it's just played out that there's a right to shelter in New York, that it doesn't actually exist per se. Yeah, and one of my favorite parts about having you in these conversations is how you help explain the why behind the big numbers in, in ways that... Um, in, in ways that non-lawyers often struggle with. I, I greatly appreciate that. Um, one other big, uh, this is this is a, a crossover between policy and housing, you know, policy and budget. But on the housing front, the governor put forward a much tamer proposal and a much more modest proposal than she did last year. Last year, she'd called for um, a, a major uptick in, in housing development, uh, essentially across the entire state. And you know she met major resistance in the legislature on that. This year, she put forward a really more modest approach. One of those pieces that that struck me as the most interesting was she wants to put strings on a lot of the economic development fund money that state officials pass out, where in order to qualify for a pool of $650 million in grants, many of them being the uh, the fund regional economic development council money uh, communities will have to be designated as pro housing communities. Um, I thought that was I thought that was interesting. That was her reaching more for the carrot than the stick. Um, frankly, the economic development programs should go away on their own. So if zero communities get qualified as as pro housing communities, I'd have no problem with that. We can put that money towards the debt limit that we're going to hit in the next three fiscal years. But uh, that was that was one thing that jumped out to me. Um, Bill, what other what other non Medicaid, non education, non housing things jumped out at you in the budget yesterday? I mean, this is a pretty small thing, but I noticed that, and I don't know the details, but I noticed that she's proposing to that Airbnb rental should be subject to the same taxes as hotel rooms. And I I think that'll be you know fodder for debate as we as we find out more about exactly how that would work who would be included i know it's a sore point for the hotel industry that you can you can rent out your apartment and and not be subject to the taxes that they're subject to also a lot of these rentals are are technically not in compliance with local laws um so 
maybe the trade-off there could be that you legalize the activity and then subject to tax taxation. Cam, what jumped out at you in the budget? Big or small? Uh, <laughs> I guess what jumped out on me it, to me was really just um, how incredibly complicated the whole thing is with her 144 page briefing book with, you know, just some of the, you know, just the smallest little policy provisions and so on. And it'd just be, it, it would seem nice to just get better focused on the things that would actually save us the most money as opposed to so many different policy proposals and, 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 and small things. Uh, I know that it, it's the it's maybe the product of the process, but it's it's a little bit frustrating when you're looking at such huge billion dollar issues. You know, uh, I could make a procedural point that um, technically, the budget that she's required to submit on budget day consists of appropriation bills. Um, she also includes a bunch of what are called Article 7 bills that are necessary to make the appropriation bills work ostensibly. Those did not appear. Those were not made public. They were not posted for public review until almost the close of business yesterday. So what we were given instead was briefing books and speeches and Q&As, which were all characterizing what those bills were going to do without giving us the the actual concrete information in those bills. Uh, and that's that's a break with, I, I, I think that probably started under Cuomo, but you know I'm old enough to remember when early on the morning of budget day, these big piles of paper would be distributed to the legislators and the press, and that was the budget. And so they could start instead of listening to the rhetoric around the budget, they could start actually reading the documents. Um, and that it's, uh, I just think so much of yesterday, a, a lot of it's just basically trying to manage the press. They want the press to write about what they say the budget's gonna do rather than what the budget actually does, which may be different. Well, the next step in the process, the governor has two opportunities to amend her presentation over the next 30 days. So we'll be watching to see what, what happens in those. Often those steps just involve fixing typos. Sometimes you do see new policy proposals pop up in there. But we'll be we'll be keeping an eye on those. Um, we'll be watching as the uh, budget hearings begin when you start to have uh, these agency heads for you know, what's often only the only time of the year come in and explain how the state has been spending money over the past fiscal year, how they plan to spend it in the coming year. And then finally, in March, we'll see what comes back from the, from the legislature with what are known as their one-house budget proposals, which is what really uh, turns up the heat on the, the backroom negotiations um, and then ahead of the, uh, the April 1 deadline for the budget. So with that, I want to thank you both. Uh, thank Cam. Thank Bill for participating here today. Thank you all for uh, for joining us and for your questions. And uh, keep an eye on EmpireSenator.org. We'll have a lot to say in the weeks ahead. Bye-bye. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at EmpireCenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.